Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Welcome to High Heels in Politics. We will cover an interesting interview today on how high tech affects your life. Have you ever been curious about GIS technology and how it pinpoints location? And is there any difference between GIS and GPS? As High Heels and Politics host, Marianne Christie, you will hear from the top expert who directs the operations at the Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana Regional Councils of Government Agency. The agency is generally referred to as OKI. Our guest, David Chewy, who is the Director of Information Systems and Analytics, will discuss on how he develops and maintains these powerful tools. OKI is a multi-state governmental organization that covers three states, Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana, with its two million people. It was established in 1964 as a response for regional cooperation in transportation development. Since then, it has expanded to include regional planning, economic development, environmental protection, and public safety. Why is this important to you? Because OKI works in attracting and retaining business by further developing economic data for site selection, infrastructure needs, public transit, railways, to name a few. It is committed to promoting public safety and working with police and emergency agencies. It also works in planning disaster communication, protection of natural resources, balanced land use practices, and a very important thing is prioritizing environmental interest. Prior to working for OKI, David was vice president of GIS Service for Project Market Decisions, a national market research and consulting firm that provided market feasibility analysis, consumer research, and demographic and geographic data products for senior living and healthcare industry that are so very important today. Our guest, David Shuey, has a Master of Communication Planning degree and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Geography from the University of Cincinnati. David, as OKI Director of Information Systems and Analytics, what is your primary responsibility and how does it fit into the needs of the region? Well, first of all, Thanks for having me on your podcast this morning, Mary Ann. I really appreciate it. And we appreciate the opportunity to share our exciting work with your audience. My primary responsibilities include managing and directing OKI's information technology operations, ensuring the efficient and effective use of technology at OKI. I also manage our geographic information systems, or GIS, operations. For those not familiar with GIS, GIS is a computer system capable of capturing, visualizing, storing, and analyzing objects and events that occur on Earth. 
Unlike a traditional database, a GIS captures the spatial components of objects. Most GIS data is represented by points, lines, and polygons. So for example, we think about capturing a point that could be a intersection control. So something that's controlling the traffic volume at intersection, whether that's a stoplight, a stop sign, a yield sign. And so we would collect the X and Y of that location as well as some attributes about it. So is it a stop sign? If it's a, a signal, what type of signal system is it? How is the, what's the computer control behind it? That type of information. For lines, we might think about things like rivers or streams. So we want to capture a series of points that make up a line and then information about that stream. Additionally, then we think about polygons. A polygon is just a line that begins and ends in the same point. So we think about maybe a neighborhood. So what's the neighborhood name, the population of that neighborhood, other key attributes like that that we're interested in So, in, in David, knowing. you can find my lot where my home is? Absolutely. So that's data that we don't necessarily maintain here at OKI, but that's something that's done by our member jurisdictions and generally the county GIS department or the auditor within each of the, our individual counties of OKI. And that also means that if I wanted to see the location of, let's say, a hotel in Germany, you can find it. We can. That would not be included in our system, but there are systems out there that would allow us to do that globally. Our system is really focused on our eight-county region here at OKI, three northern Kentucky counties, our four southwest Ohio counties, and then Dearborn County in southeast Indiana. How did you develop OKI's GIS? How do you manage it, and what type of data is included, and what's your biggest challenges? Yeah, so I was hired in 2002, 20 years ago, believe it or not, to build OKI's GIS. Uh, prior to me arriving at OKI, our planners used GIS kind of ad hoc. They would each go out and collect the data they needed for a particular project and then begin using it. And I think the executive director at the time realized that was not the future and that we needed to build a robust enterprise system here. What I did is when I came in, I began to evaluate our hardware and our software needs. But beyond that, I really needed to understand those relationships at the county level with those other GIS managers at each county. County auditor, you work with them. And cages and county auditors. And at each county within our region, there's someone that sort of heads up their GIS. And sometimes that's connected to multiple departments, and sometimes it's a single department. But the data that they provide to OKI are really our building blocks for everything we do. Our system would not be possible without their efforts and their hard work to develop sort of these base layers that we use. So as an example, we rely on each county street centerline data to build our regional street network, which is really at the heart of everything we do here at OKI. So we standardize their data to fit OKI's data model because everyone has their own data model and their own business needs. We standardize it to fit ours, and then we add additional attributes where necessary to be able to create this regional street network. My team and I manage the system. I have an outstanding team of experts that, that help with this. They're all subject matter experts. The work they do is fantastic. And then beyond data, we've developed a variety of mapping applications that can be used to access spatial data for non-GIS users. So people that aren't experts in GIS, if they want to access our information, we've created tools that allow them to, to do that in a, in a very intuitive fashion. So you're saying you can... See, every single street, like let's say Cincinnati or Covington, Kentucky. So in our region, there's over 90,000 unique street segments that make up our street network. And we have address information about each and every one of those. We have the speed limit. We know whether or not there's a two-way turn lane, whether or not it's a one-way street. 
all that information that we would need to help plan for the transportation system is included in this network. So what you do is when I come to a stoplight and there's a directional signal for left turns, it's something that your work has made that decision that should be done to help the flow of traffic? Certainly can be. And we also, we inventory that data so that for future analysis and for future travel demand models that it's included in there, but it's certainly part of that work. Absolutely. We can talk about some of our layers that we have. I know there might be interest in, you know, what type of data do you collect? So our GI layers include, and this is not an all-inclusive list. This is just kind of a quick sample, but we have aquifer boundaries, bicycle infrastructure, bridges, transit routes and stops, crashes, flood zones, land use, stream and water bodies, parcels, parks, rail lines, schools, wastewater treatment plants, port facilities, elevation data, and aerial imagery, plus, like I said, a lot more. Our biggest challenge in building and maintaining this data revolves around the data required to power this system. It's a lot of data. It comes from a variety of sources. Our region covers parts of three states, eight counties, and over 190 jurisdictions. And at some level, they all may have GIS data that gets pushed upwards and it would come into our system. So as you might expect, obtaining, creating, and compiling data for such a large and geographically diverse region can prove to be challenging at times. We overcome the challenges by assembling this data and automating many of the processes. So on an annual basis, we make a request of each of our counties to provide their GIS data to us. We then need to integrate that into our enterprise system here. When I first got here, that was a very manual process. It was kind of brute force. We're going in and looking at all corners of the the region trying to figure out where we've had growth and where the infrastructure is expanding and then pulling that data. Since then, we have a little bit more elegant approach to tackle this. And so if you think about street center lines, we'll go in and we'll look at what the change has been from the previous year. We look at where attributes have changed, and then we're able to very quickly go in and make the updates to our system based upon what we see there. Another example revolves around crash data. So we get crash data from each of our three states every year. And the data that comes in, while over time it's got, gotten much more clean than what it was originally, some of that data is not located in the right spot. So think about an off officer who files a report, and rather than using his GPS at that location where the report happened or where the accident happened, he goes off-site to get off a busy highway or something like that and parks in a parking lot someplace. And he forgot to capture the GPS location of the accident, so he captures it in this parking lot. So what we'll do is we compare the description on the police report with the actual location that's showing up as reported by GPS and compare the two. And if they're not the same, we go in and we update the data with the actual location as described on the police report. So that's something that we do. And there's some other data cleaning that's involved with, with the crash reports, but it's something that we want to do to ensure that when we're calculating crash rates for a region, that the data that we're uh, presenting is as accurate as it can be. So that's, that's really important. That's kind of how GIS is used in urban and transportation planning. Mm -hmm. Is there anything additional? As you imagine, GPS can be, or GIS can be used in a wide variety of ways to support urban transportation planning. Some of the things that it can be used for include site selection, land suitability analysis, travel demand modeling, roadway safety analysis, impact assessments, tracking changes over time, route planning, and viewshed analysis, just to name a few. All of our planners at OKI use GIS in their daily role. So we have everyone trained so that they're using it as a planner. They have access to the entire system. 
you can use the power of GIS to, to help with their daily workflows. That's really important. Sort of if you want to talk about a specific opportunity that we've had in this space, uh, we developed uh, an application a few years back called the Transit Analyst. And this came about because OKI board member Ken Reed, and he was also at that point in time, he was on the SORTA board as well, had approached us about some of our demographic data that we have here at OKI. And he asked us, you know, is there a way that you guys can make this available to our transit agencies in the region so that when they're doing route planning or they want to make changes to their routes, that they can quickly understand how many people reside within a certain distance of that bus stop or how many people work within a distance of that bus stop. So you want to explain what SORTA is? Yeah. <laughs> so SORTA is the Southwest Ohio Regional Transportation Agency, and they manage the metro bus system here in greater Cincinnati. And so what we did is we, we took that demographic data and we took the employment data and we spun up an app that allows them to go in and either draw a bus route, a proposed bus route or bus stops. And we're able to then calculate for them what the population is within that polygon that we create. So we spin up a buffer around it. So it could be a quarter mile, it could be a half mile. It really depends on their level of analysis they want to look at. And then we tell them that there's X number of people that live there and Y number of people that work within that, that zone. And so then they can say, all right, well, that translates into demand for transit. And do you include in that, let's say, the salary structure of the people in a given group? Currently do not include income levels. They did that was something that they were not interested in necessarily. I'm assuming they have multipliers that they use against the total population and against deployment to kind of look at what that makeup might be. But yeah, currently yeah. we do not include that, but that's something well, that would be easy to do. Yeah, because it, depending on the income level of a district would be reason for using bus transportation. No, absolutely. That's That could be a, a key determining factor in their success in an area. Absolutely. You've talked a lot about a lot about all this data and mapping resources. What do you make available to not only local government, but to the public? Yeah, so we make a wide variety of our data available. Anything that we can possibly package up nicely and, and put in an app that's easy to use, we will publish out on our website. And if you go to the OKI website at www.oki.org, there's a maps and apps gallery. If you go into that gallery, you'll see a wide variety of applications you can filter on application types. So whether you're looking for something transportation related or environmental related, you can dig into that and see what we have. I can kind of mention a few things that we do out there. Big okay. one is traffic counts. We generally have a lot of people that call us and want to know what a traffic count is on a particular roadway. So whether this is a real estate agent or a developer or just a local community that's kind of curious or even a citizen that wants to know how many people drive by a location on a given day, We've put together a large database of these traffic counts for the region, and it's in a traffic count viewer. So what it allows people to do is they can go in and explore a map. They can click on a point on the map, which are traffic count stations, and then they can download the data. They can print maps, or they can even chart traffic volumes by time of day. So if they want to see what time of day the most volumes going by a particular spot on a roadway, they can drill down that far into the data and see that information. But this is something we provide because, again, we collect the data and feel like it's something that needs to be out there for the public to use for a multitude of uses. I want to reemphasize that OKI is open to the public. That's correct. Absolutely. Yeah, and so, you will give us a contact number at the end. We will certainly end. talk about that. Yeah. Okay. And so another, another one, I, I can hit on a couple more here for you. Bridge conditions, another one we look at. So this is based upon the U.S. Department of Transportation's National Bridge Inventory. 
And so this viewer allows the user to explore bridge condition rankings for over 2,300 local bridges. And the map displays the bridge location, its condition, and then what the average traffic volume is. So yeah. if, if you're worried about some bridge you're driving over every day, is it functionally obsolete or is it in really bad shape? This will quickly be able to tell you whether or not that's the case. So we think that that's important information to have out there. Again, it's a national data set, but one that a lot of people aren't aware of and one that we use frequently in our work here. And we thought that others might be interested in that as well. The last one I'll mention is our water resource viewer. And this is a mapping application that displays data layers relevant to water quality planning and wastewater management. People can go in and and look at their watershed and see what are potential water quality issues and other environmental issues within that watershed that might impact where they live or work. There's another thing I knew that OKI does. Tree for me, what in the world is that? So this is one of our environmental applications, and this was developed at the bequest of our regional transportation planning manager, Travis Miller. And it's really a dual-purpose tool. First, it can be used to calculate the benefits of planting a tree. So users are able to select a tree species common to our region. So we're not looking for non-native trees necessarily. We want to find trees that are native that are going to work well in this region so that they grow properly and don't end up by being some environmental hazard to the region long term. So users can select that tree to be planted in the location of their choosing. The tool estimates stormwater and the number of gallons of rainfall intercepted and gallons of stormwater runoff avoided annually. It also evaluates air quality in terms of value of removed pollutants and carbon dioxide benefits. The app also provides the user with the tree's approximate crown at maturity. So this is really critical. So a lot of people go to the the nursery and they buy a tree and they don't realize how big it might grow one day. And so when they go to plant it in their yard, they plant it in a location that is either too close to utility lines or too close to the house, maybe too close to a driveway. And then 10 or 15 or 20 years later, they realize this tree is hanging over their house and it's causing issues with the roof or with their gutter. And so this tool allows them to see how big the footprint of that tree might be at full maturity. So hmm. you actually see that on a map in the homeowner's yard on an aerial imagery. It's 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 very, very powerful tool for them to have access to. How can GIS be used in climate change and conservation? Yeah, so GIS is an incredibly powerful tool we've kind of talked about today, and, and certainly in the, the realm of conservation efforts and responding to the impacts of climate change, there's quite a few opportunities for it to help. So the first of those areas is understanding the impacts of climate change. And so in our area, we think about climate change, it primarily are, are relates to these heavy rain events that we get. So we're, we're seeing more and more flooding And so trying to understand what that impact might be and what the impact, in our case, what the impact is on the transportation network here. You know, are we talking about roads that might be closed and and that type of thing? The second area that we can use it in is detailed risk analysis and response plans. So we're going to look at those areas that might be susceptible to to flooding and what type of response plan are we going to put in place? Is it detour that we set up or is there something of that nature? So GIS helps us look at that as well and then create that plan for responding to the risk analysis. And then finally, the final area that it's a good way to use it is in climate mapping for resiliency and adaptation. So how do we begin to create our built environment so that it's able to withstand the impacts of climate change? And that's kind of what really the third way that we use GIS to to help with this. In terms of, we haven't talked about solar yet. I don't know if you want to talk about kind of solar aspect of things as well. 
Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's very interesting, very important to the listeners. So, yeah. So, we, so OCA has developed a tool for homeowners and businesses for evaluating the rooftops for solar panels. We thought this was something that was important to do. So the system allows homeowner to select the rooftop from a map. First, they put their address in, they'd zoom to the area, then they click on the rooftop. And once they select that rooftop, the user can see what the square footage of the rooftop is. They can see the usable rooftop area. So what's that area that's likely pointing south or east or west, and it's going to be the provide the best footprint for solar usage? What is the potential system size in kilowatts? What is the estimated annual electricity generated from that rooftop? And what are the annual electricity savings, the annual CO2 offset, and what's the optimal placement of that array on the rooftop? It was designed as a quick check for homeowners to provide prior to contacting a solar provider. We developed the tool in tandem with local solar companies to get their expertise and their input to verify that what we were, our calculations for solar were indeed accurate. We know now that many of them direct potential clients to our site before they do any analysis on their own. So it's, it's not a detailed analysis, but it's a quick check and lets people know my rooftop could support solar or likely won't support solar. So there's not any sense of wasting my time or anyone else's time if I have that type of rooftop that's just not conducive for a solar array. Hmm, interesting. Not only listeners, but myself is confused by what is the difference between GIS and GPS? Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about what GIS and kind of that it's this large system. GPS stands for Global Positioning System. To start with just a little bit of history on it, so it was developed in the the 1970s and the 1980s by the U.S. military. It was a way for them to track troop movements and their assets and infrastructure. And in the late 80s, early 90s, it became commercialized and they opened up the array for commercialization of the array. And so what we have today is based upon that. Many countries have GPS satellite constellations. We're just one of many. The European Union has one. Russia has one. China has one. I believe Japan has one. So there's other competing systems out there. But what we use in the U.S. is primarily a mixture of the U.S. and the European Union systems. Easiest way to think about the difference between GIS and GPS is this. GIS is the the holistic system. GPS is a way of gathering GIS data. And so whether that's the live location of your car driving from here to Columbus or whether it's OKI sending someone out in the field with a GPS unit to collect the latest bike infrastructure. So maybe we've added onto the Little Miami Trail. We want to go out and capture the location of that. We can send someone out in the field to do that. But most people think of GPS is that I can put it into my computer how to get from point A to point B. And I think a a lot of listeners think in those terms about GPS. They do. And and so GPS is what allows you to see your place and your location in real time. Whereas GIS is the underlying base map that you see. So when you'd say, I want to go from Cincinnati to Columbus, that's a routing function that's that's being provided to you based upon GIS data. Your location along that route is the GPS component of that, if that makes sense. Yep. How can these technologies that you've been talking about be used in disaster response and emergency management? OKI, back in about 2008, partnered with local first responders and emergency management professionals to develop a program called Raven 911. 
And Raven 911 brings together responder-defined critical data sets with easy-to-use mapping tools and allowing users to interact with the map in a meaningful and efficient way during an emergency. To give you a little bit of background about how we got to where we are today with this system is if you think back to 2008, and if you remember September of 2008 in particular, remnants of Hurricane Ike blew through our region. We had a windstorm. It knocked out power to about 90% of the region. What happened then is, is a lot of emergency responders realized they didn't have quick access to basic critical infrastructure at their fingertips. They had stuff that might have been in a book someplace. It might have been in a GIS layer some other place. But nothing was centralized in terms of these assets. So what we did is we built a system with their cooperation. They came to us and said, we understand you're the keeper of large regional data sets, and we don't know where some basic infrastructure is. And we would like to cure that so that for future emergencies, We have this at our fingertips. So that was how Raven was born. And basically what Raven does is it gives emergency responders the ability to create situational awareness around an event or emergency. It includes live data feeds like stream gauges. So think about river levels along the Ohio River, Artemis traffic cameras, weather radar, weather warnings, and real-time commercial river traffic. So where are all those barges along the river at any one given time? It also includes critical infrastructure, Players like airports, cell phone towers, daycare facilities, emergency sirens, electrical grid infrastructure, railroad crossings, and, and much, much more. And then assets used to respond to emergencies are also included. So think about a boat or a some other type of equipment that emergency responders use. They have access. They know where all those are across the region. So not every jurisdiction has every piece of equipment, but... Hamilton County might have something that Boone County doesn't have. And if Boone County has a need for it, they can look on Raven and see that Hamilton County has this piece of equipment wait, wait, and then well, request it. You keep it. mentioning this Raven. What is that? Raven, it's a system for emergency responders. So it's, it, it's, it's how just, does it, what does it stand for? Raven stands for the Regional Asset Verification and Emergency Network, 911. Okay. And so it is, it's an online or computer GIS system that emergency responders use, but don't have to have GIS experience to use it. So we've simplified the tools. It's web-based, so they can access it anywhere. And it's come in quite handy in a a number of situations. And we've also developed tools that allow the responders and analysts to quickly solve spatial problems. So think about a drive-time calculator. Imagine there was a bank robbery, and we had a, a suspect take off in his car. And how far can that person go in five or 10 or 15 minutes? We can spin up a polygon around that bank to have a search area to say, all right, we think he's in within this search area. Another tool we have is something called the the float distance. And what this is, this measures how far an object or a person can float in the Ohio River over a given period of time. So if we had someone fall off a bridge and they were floating down the river, this gives us zones where we can send boats on the river and say, they're between mile marker 450 and 451 on the river. I mean, that's based upon real-time river flow data. So we know how quickly the river's flowing at any given time. And so that built, we built this model that lets people see that. We also have a tool for containment zone creation. So if there was a, a derailment of a train, where do we need to contain based upon the chemicals that are on that train? So the emergency responders know the chemicals. They plug that in. We create a plume the plume tool allows emergency responders to put in the location of the spill or the derailment 
And then on top of that, they can then factor that in with, with overlay that with weather data to see where the plume is going to travel. And then that intersect that with critical assets. So is that going to impact a school or a hospital or what else might that plume impact? And where do we need to set up containment around that spill? Much like the new Palestine rail incident we saw a couple of weeks ago in the news. This is a tool that we have and we've had for almost 15 years now in the local region to address just such an emergency so that emergency responders can get people out of harm's way. Well, do you want to elaborate a little bit further about the new Palestine, how you're able to look at the chemicals? Yeah, so we have a, a detailed chemical list within Raven 911. And within that list, it tells us sort of the volatility of each of these chemicals and how likely it is to travel given certain weather conditions. And so we model those weather conditions, the current weather conditions in that chemical to see what its likely path is going to be and then what potential infrastructure it can impact. And then we want to either be able to tell people to shelter in place or to evacuate depending on what the chemical is. So that is all built into this system to let emergency responders know how they need to react. It sounds interesting about the work that OKI does. Is it the only group in the whole United States? We are not. So every major metro area that has at least 50,000 people has a sister agency to OKI that does exactly the same type of planning that we do, whether it's transportation, environmental. Each one is governed a little bit differently. So we generally do the same things, but not all exactly the same things. Like our, our sister agency in Columbus also does a lot of work in the housing realm, whereas we don't do that in the late 70s, early 80s we did, but we've gotten out of that business. We're not dealing with that. But yeah, we are very common agency across the U.S. We like to think we're the best at what we do here at OKI. We've won a lot of national recognition for our work, so and we're very proud of that. What are some of the ethical considerations using these technologies? We kind of circle back to GPS. A lot of the data sets that we use now are derived from, from GPS data sets, including cell phone records, GPS units in cars and trucks. And so sort of our stand on this is that we only use GPS-derived data that's been anonymized or aggregated in a way that does not allow for the visualization of personally identifiable information. So we don't want to impinge on our citizens' privacy in any way. The vendors that we work with in obtaining this data, we make sure that it's anonymized and been aggregated in a way that it could in no way be traced back to an individual user. Well, since you brought up GPS again, what's one of the most common problems that users encounter with the GPS? And when I say the users, I mean the average citizen with GPS. Yeah, the average citizen, you know, nowadays the, the problems aren't that many other than knowing who might be tracking you and when. So we all carry around smartphones today. And a lot of the apps that you have on your smartphone like to track you. To me, in, in my world, it's understanding what apps are tracking you and why they want to track you. It might be something that's useful to you to be tracked because you get near something and it's going to tell you that you're near something and there's some value to you. But I also believe that it can be fairly invasive. And I'm not a big fan of being tracked unless I know I'm being tracked and that, that I'm assigning permission for that to happen. How can I tell if somebody is tracking me? Depends on your, your smartphone. If you have an Apple device, if you go into your settings in your Apple device and your privacy, it will tell you which 
Uh, apps are actively tracking you. Android, I'm not sure has that level of detail. They may, but I'm not an Android user, so I can't speak to that. Yeah, Apple has made it so that you can see who's tracking you and when, and you can assign permission as to whether or not you want to allow them to track you. What do you see as the future of these technologies and what's on the horizon? We're always kind of watching what's next here at OKI and how might we leverage that to inform our work. And so two things that we're really excited about right now are artificial intelligence and machine learning. In regards to machine learning, we're actively using machine learning right now. We've developed some algorithms and we've trained some data sets that will allow us to extract features from aerial imagery. So you think about aerial imagery as there's planes that fly over and they capture a picture of Earth, right? And similar to what you would see on Google Earth or in Apple Maps, and so we take and we're able to, to train a data set to go in and extract certain features from that and create a GIS layer from it. And two of the things that we're really interested in right now are bicycle lanes and crosswalks. And the reason we're interested in those is, number one, bicycles and moving people around. It's a very hot topic right now. People are very interested in, in active transportation. So we want to make sure that our data set is up to date in terms of where that bicycle infrastructure is. The problem we have is a lot of our local counties don't collect that information. You know, I talked early on about we get data, a certain amount of our data from counties. That's one of the features that they don't have. So we need to be able to build out where the bicycle infrastructure is, where their bike lanes. So we're able to take and through the pavement markings on the road, identify that that's a bicycle lane. We train the computer to identify it, and then it creates a GIS layer for us. So very, very powerful, and it's a very efficient way to collect that type of data. The other thing that I'm really interested in and kind of watching actively is artificial intelligence. So I've been researching the impact that chat GBT might have on the GIS field. One of the areas that, that I think right now that has the most promise is being able to quickly write automation scripts and other GIS scripts. I talked about how we automate many of our processes here. Well, chat GBT can write code for you. And in particular, we're looking at Python code. And so if you say, chat GPT, please write me a Python script that does X, Y, and Z, it will actually spit that out for you without having to go and do it. So it's, it's, a, it's a time saver. And it also allows people that may not have the same level of expertise with programming to be able to do a lot more than what they could ordinarily. So I, I think there's that. And I think there's a lot more that, that we're going to see coming in that realm as well that we're very excited to see where it leads. No, oh, it's interesting. Well, I want to just say I'm really impressed by the breadth and depth of the knowledge and information you have provided and the possibilities of technology. Our listeners like to know a lot more about the, our guests. You're a native Cincinnatian, and you're involved in a lot of community activities. Describe where your family you live and your involvement, you've also been an elected official. Yeah, you bet. So I'm a lifelong Westside Cincinnatian. I've lived there all but, I guess, one year of my life. I lived in Detroit for a year after I graduated from college, worked up there, and then came back to go to grad school. And I've been back since, I said, primarily on the West Side. I lived in Coleraine Township, Cleves, and now I live in Green Township. I think it's, it's very important to be an active member of your community. So every community that I've lived in, I've been very involved with. So in Coleraine Township, I was on the Land Use Advisory Board and on the Zoning Commission. When I moved to Cleves, I joined the Cleves Planning Commission. And then I was also elected to three terms on the Three Rivers Board of Education. Again, I think it's very important that we're, that we're involved and we give back. Uh, you know, I live currently in Green Township with my wife, and we have five daughters between us. That's lots of fun. Uh, and they range in age from 18 to 25. So 
Three of them are out of the house now. We still have two at home, but they're all active and productive members of society. Children, even when they're young adults, are constantly bringing things to the family. I did have an interview with the CEO of OKI. He talked a lot about transportation. But you know, David, OKI does a lot of other things. And I wonder what other areas could we kind of in the future address in these interviews that may be a benefit to people in the region? There's, there's two that really come to the top of mind. First one would be our water quality planning efforts and the work that we're doing in that space. And then we also have a lot of environmental planning activities that we do here as well. Travis Miller is is the manager of that department, and I'm sure he and his team would be more than willing to sit down with you and kind of tell you what they're working on. But it's it's all very exciting things that they do. And outside the realm of what a lot of people think about OKI when they think about OKI, because you know generally it's transportation's top of mind for OKI, but these are very important programs that we work on that have a meaningful impact on the lives of uh, people that live in greater Cincinnati. I want to thank you for your time and expertise. How can people contact you to help them find that information at OKI? Yeah, you bet. There's really two two good ways to contact me. The first would be via email, which is my preferred methods. You can reach me at dshuey at oki.org. Or if you prefer the phone, you can reach me at 513-619-7689. You want to repeat that telephone number? You bet. <laughs> 513-619-7689. I want to thank you again and just say to our listeners, OKI really plays a critical role in improving the quality of life for people in the greater Cincinnati region. And don't hesitate to contact David or he can help direct you to talk to somebody about an area that you're interested in. Thank you again. And thank you to our High Heels and Politics listeners. Thank you, Marianne. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.